All right, we'll be in Exodus chapters 1 and 2 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Exodus 1 and 2. Getting ready for my vacation. We go on vacation on Saturday for a week. Uh, Pastor Aaron will be sharing this Sunday and next Wednesday. And we have a special worship leader. What day is he coming, Aaron? Sunday or Wednesday? Sunday. So this Sunday we've got a special worship leader from Calvary Chapel in Columbia. He's coming up. So that'll be fun. Nice to take a break from that horrible Dirks and Calvary band, you know. I've already got my lounge gear on, as you can tell. I look like a golfer this tonight, so I'm already in vacation mode. Well, let's pray, and we'll get started. Lord, we, we thank you for helping us work out the glitches with the stream, and uh, Lord, we pray that you, you must have something for us here in your word. As you know, Satan loves to attack, and um, he loves to keep your word from going out and um, gets our minds distracted. And so we pray that as we focus on your word tonight, as we prepared our hearts through song and through prayer to receive everything you have for us, Lord, we pray that you bear much fruit in our lives, God, that your word would be sown and watered and um, that the increase would be yours. And we give you all the glory for that. We pray for those that are watching online, Lord, bless them abundantly as they're not able to make it. And I pray that you'd minister to them as well as it's different sitting in your living room or sitting wherever you are and not being surrounded by all the people. and, and uh, But it doesn't matter. We're two or more are gathered. You're in our midst, and we appreciate that and love that. So, Lord, by your Spirit, we're, we're all together here. So, Lord, as we get into Exodus and we study these first two chapters and life of Moses in the beginning, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to get this and remember it and see all the beauty that you have, um, even in these terrible times that Moses is born in. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got a gap of a few hundred years between Genesis and Exodus. As we finished up last week, the beginning, which is what Genesis means, we move on to the book of Exodus. We were told earlier on um, that this would take place, that the Jacob's family, Abraham's family, eventually would be brought into this uh, foreign land and be raised up and made into a nation. And that's what we've had happening here. We know from a famine through circumstances, pressure, Jacob was forced to take his 70 folks into Egypt just to survive. And of course, went before him. He sent Joseph. God made a, a way for Joseph to get into a high position to where Jacob and his family could be taken care of once they're there. Well, they've been there a while now, and they've been multiplying rapidly, um, six to one. It's been an amazing population boom. And the Bible describes that here in this first chapter in such a way that it's supernatural. It's not a, well, would you look at that? You know, it's a supernatural thing. God is blessing him and doing what he promised he would do um, during these times in the nation of Egypt. Now, that's where we begin our story. This 400-year gap, they've been there for several generations, and the Bible gets us up to speed. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gem, uh, Gemini, uh, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already, and Joseph died. That's the key. Joseph died. All his brothers and all that generation but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. And so that's the idea here. It was a supernatural population explosion. God was doing a work. God was raising up and building a nation. We know from uh, the end of Exodus, or about the middle, when they come out of Egypt here, that there's a population of about 2 million people. We get 600,000 over the age of uh, war people, men, uh, 20 and up. And so then you've got to count all the women in that age group, which are not counted. Then you've got to count all the people below 19 and below. And then you've got to call, count all the elderly folks that aren't able to go to war. And you come up with an estimate between two and four million people, a lot. I mean, it's, I know that's quite a, <laughs> that's quite a gap, two or four, but it isn't fine. Two, two million people, that's plenty. From 70 to two million in four generations, that's a lot of folks. And so that's what's happened. God has made them a nation. And he's done this on purpose. It's a, it's a hard life that they're about to go through. We're going to read a little bit about that. And um, 
It's difficult to, to read and to understand why God would allow something like this until you get into later on in, the, in this book, we, we see the stubbornness of Israel. There's a couple times, even after 400 years of this slavery and hard labor, that as they've left with all the goods of Egypt, they actually look back and say, oh, you remember the, the leeks and the onions and how great it was back in Egypt? So before we get into how harsh God is with the nation of Israel, you got to understand he knows his kids. Anybody have a stubborn kid in their family? These would be the poster children for stubborn children. I mean, how many spankings do they need to get this through their head? How many times do they have to go around this mountain to get this through their head? Well, the nation of Egypt, after 400 years of slavery, just a few years later out in the wilderness says, yeah, it'd be better if we were back there. It was easier back then. So we understand God does what's absolutely necessary to get them to cry out to him to want to leave. Okay? So verse 8. Um, now, those, or now there arose a, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply even more so. And it happened in the event of war, or, and it happened in the event of war that uh, they also join our camps and fight against us. So they go up out of the land. So they've got this concern. This new guy comes up. So I don't know who all these people are. I mean, I've been watching. He knows who they are. But he doesn't know them, know them like the former pharaohs knew them, like they were good workers, good, you know, productive citizens of Egypt and so on. He's concerned. There's a lot of them. I mean, have you even looked at this population and seen how if a, an enemy came in, what if they coerced these people into fighting against us? We've got an enemy within our borders. And now this is all made up in their heads. The Israelis have shown no interest in, in, in an insurrection here. But he's just thinking strategically. Well, here's what happens. What if, what if A happens? We need to have B, C, and D in order. And, you know, so there's a, there's a strategy session going on. And, and, and then what if, they, what if they just decide to leave? Where would our labor force go? What if they all left? And so he's concerned. We need to deal shrewdly with them. We need to deal shrewdly. Now, um, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, Abraham's was told this by the Lord. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. This was forecast. This was prophesied by the Lord, given them information. Abraham, I want you to know that your family eventually will be oppressed for 400 years into slavery. God knows all this. God sees all this. He says, but don't worry, I'll punish those that enslave them. But there's a reason that we're doing this. There's a reason I'm tempering them. There's a reason we're getting hard here on them. Um, but I don't want you to be surprised by it. I, I'm grateful when God warns me ahead of time of tough times. I don't like it when it's a surprise. At first, when God gives you a warning of something around the bend, you think, well, I don't want to be that kind of guy who's always fearful and worried about the sh other shoe dropping, you know. And yet, I do ask God to show me these things ahead of time in, in other prayers. And so when he does, there's a little shock. There's a little, oh, great. I'm not looking forward to that, but I'm glad it, you told me ahead of time. Because when I know that God knows what's going to happen, it, I don't know, it makes it easier. It always has. Jesus does that throughout for, for all of his disciples. He lets them know, here's exactly what's going to happen, you guys. And I'm telling you this so that when it does happen, you knew that I knew. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be given up and crucified. I'm going to die. And for three days, I'm going to be buried in the grave. But I'm going to rise again. He let them know ahead of time. And yet, even when they, were, they knew that information, when it actually went down, they freaked. You know, they did. So even though Abraham was told, this is going to happen to your people, and I'm not going to tell you exactly when, but it's going to happen. It's hard to look at that and, 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 and wait for that shoe to drop. And so when it finally does, which is what we're reading right here, Jacob's gone, Isaac's gone, Abraham, the one that he told that was gone. I hope Abraham passed that on. I hope everybody was told all these things. 
It's very important as Christians we pick up on this. We've been told a great deal. We've, we've, we've accumulated a lot of Bible study in our lives. A lot of us are senior saints. We've been at this a long time. We're mature. We study. We show ourselves approved. It's very important that we're passing on this knowledge to those around us. Here's what I read. Here's what I discovered. Here's what I see happening. To know these things are happening, and they're going to happen. It's important that my kids know what the book of Revelation says and how things are going to go down. It's important we don't skip over the, the bad parts of the Bible that we call the bad parts, the, the, the squeamish parts, maybe. I want to read all of it to them. I want them to know. It helps them to handle things, you know. It helps them to go through this and say, well, you know, I've been reading this my whole life, and I can see it unfolding. None of these things move me. That's what I'm trying to train my kids up for. So I hope Abraham passed it on, and I hope we take heed to this. Because they're going to be afflicted here. It's going to come upon them. In Genesis 46.3, Jacob gets told by the Lord, two generations later, I am God, the God of your father. And the voice said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make your family into a great nation. Now, he's probably heard from his dad, Isaac, and Isaac heard from Abraham, and he knows what this means, another foreign land. Maybe that's why Jacob hesitated for so long to go get food. Maybe that's why he didn't want to take the family down there. Maybe he was concerned, but as he sees Joseph set up there, and he sees God's hand and his plan, and he says, oh, well, and then God speaks to him, which is what we all need to hear. I've heard it from Isaac, I've heard it from Abraham, but when God spoke to Jacob directly, that's when the assurance came in, it's okay to go to Egypt, I'm going to make you the nation there. Now, he's got to put that together with Genesis 15, 13, if Abraham passed it on to him. This is it. Here we go. Now, here's Pharaoh's plan, verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them, with their burdens. In other words, they're going to be doing the work that the Egyptians didn't want to do. So they're doing that. And they built Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted him, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. There's nothing to be in dread about. They're just in dread. And this dread, this fear that's unfounded and there's no basis for it at all is causing them to react. They're reacting out of fear, not out of fact. But it's going to be used for God's glory. They were still multiplying. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. So even harder. The word rigor was misery, basically. It's going to be absolute. We're going to make your life miserable. We thought you were tired enough after work putting you through 14, 16-hour days that you wouldn't have the energy when you got home. But apparently you do, not to put too fine a point on it. So we're going to make it even worse for you so that you don't have any energy to go ahead and propagate. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with vigor, made their life miserable is the idea, constantly, 24 hours a day. You know what that does to a marriage normally? A marriage that isn't grounded with the Lord, isn't focused on Jesus, is easily stumbled, it's easily broken. Without your marriage being built upon the rock of Jesus Christ, you are on shifting sands. And any kind of wind or wave that comes along your way can throw your marriage into a tailspin. And I know I'm mixing my metaphors, but... It's bad. It has to be on Jesus. So that when a wind comes up, a gale, a force, a gust, something in life comes and blows its way into your life, you're together in it. You feel the wind. You understand the enemy isn't each other. It's the wind. Or when a wave comes and tries to knock out your feet from underneath you, you realize, I don't need to punch my wife or my wife doesn't need to punch me. It's about the wave. This is a difficult thing that we go through together. And I'm not blaming her for the wave. And she's not blaming me for the wave. It's just a wave. It's just life. And we're in this together. The nation of Israel is grounded for now. They're grounded. 
So vigor, mortar, uh, long days doesn't cause dad to swing by and grab a 12-pack and guzzle it and watch TV all night long, which a lot of the world today does. It causes them to cling together as husband and wife. And clinging makes babies, you know? There's, that's what's happening here. That's the beauty of this. That's how we know their marriage is so strong and so solid, is they're not saying, get away from me, I'm tired. Ooh, you're sweaty. Can't you put your boots where they belong? None of that's going on. Everybody understands who the enemy is here, and it's not in the home. As Christians, we need to understand that. We have an adversary who loves to destroy marriages, loves to destroy children. And if he gets us looking at each other instead of who the true enemy is, Satan himself, then we're going to be fighting the wrong thing. These folks know who the enemy is, and it's not each other. And so even though all this is happening, even though they're supposed to be physically tired, they're still producing. It's a supernatural thing. God is with them. I think that was the key for Jacob. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. This ain't working. They're still producing. Of whom the name of one was uh, Shifra. Uh, yeah, Shifra. And the other is Pua. And he said, when you do the duty of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but uh, saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty, and so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. It's a wonderful section for us. So much to learn from this. Remember, Egypt represents the world. And sometimes we're stuck in the world, and sometimes the world's rules are wrong. I got scriptures in my mind. I've I've gone through a, a season these last three or four months where um, I realized that what we do when we study the Bible or teach the Bible in any way, shape, or form is the best medicine for this world. The best medicine for this world is to have a bunch of believers that understand what Scripture means and says. I've heard more people misquote Scripture, illiterate Christians, biblically illiterate Christians misquote Scripture into obeying rules that are contrary to God. We're not called to that. Oh, wait, wait, there's, there's verses. Well, let me, let me read to you some verses. Here, here, here's, here's some of them. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men, for we ourselves we're also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So see, you need to obey those rulers, no matter what they say. No. Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable for you. In every circumstance, so, so how is it then, we've got some disciples here that are brought before some people in Acts chapter 5, verses 28 through 33, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. How do you reconcile those three scriptures together? Easily. We obey God, Christians. If God tells me that the next time Jenny has a baby... That ain't happening. But if next time, Jenny, <laughs> and some Yahoo 
In Missouri, says, I'm sorry, you've got six. That's your limit. Seventh has got to die. Nope. Not going to happen. You're supposed to obey man. No, 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 no. No, no, no. If we were supposed to obey man, then we should have never had a revolution. We would have never have a country. I'm beginning to realize how many people would not have been on my side at the Tea Party. And they're Christians. We need to get that straight. As Christians, we need to work this out. And I'm really glad these last three or four months have happened. Because a lot of Christians got their line drawn, which should have been drawn a long time ago, but they needed to learn where that line is and draw it. I'll do this voluntarily to a point. But after that point, I'm kind of done with this. And it's very important we have that line and understand where that is as believers. Did the midwives do something wrong? I don't know how they handled it. I don't know how much of this is happening. Maybe they said, well, the Egyptian women don't, or they don't do any work anymore, so they're weak. It takes them like 10 hours to have a baby. So, based on that timeline, even though the Hebrew women work every single day and they're barely even pausing the picking or whatever it is they're doing, they just stop. I had a really funny phrase. Should I say it? Stop, plop, and roll, and they get on with it. <laughs> And they pick this baby up out of the dirt, and we keep on going. So if I give the Hebrew women 10 hours, and the midwives are, sorry, I'm going to get out of the camera, kind of walk like this to the Hebrew women, oh, they already had the baby, and by the time I got there, what was I supposed to do? You know, baby's already born. Uh, maybe. I'm just assuming they came up with a plan where it's like, yeah, no, we fear God. We're not going to be doing any. Uh, late-term abortions or full-term abortions here. We're not going to do that. That's against God's will. Always has been. I'm not doing that. We're not going to pull that. So they took their time getting there. And it says that, it's interesting how verse 20 is written. Therefore, God dealt with the midwives. Dealt with them how? Because it sounds like he's, it's punitive, you know? And so God dealt with those midwives to the point where he gave them households. I'll take that kind of dealing any, any day. You midwives, I'm going to bless you abundantly. You know, I'm going to give you children and provide for you. And that's what you get for disobeying Pharaoh. You know, I'll take that. And so God does that for the nation of Israel. He's protective. See, Pharaoh doesn't understand what he's up against. He's used to going up with frogs and lice and those kind of gods. The crocodiles kind of gods. The man-made ones. Those are pretty easy. Pharaoh is considered himself somewhat of a deity at the time. So, you know, if the crocodile god makes him mad, the god of the Nile, well, he can just kind of change the rules on how we worship the crocodile god. What's the crocodile god going to do? There's no such thing. But he's never run into a true and living god before. Who says, no, you're going to have as many kids as I want you to have, and no one's going to stop this from happening. You can press them as hard as you want to, and that's okay, because I'm trying to get them to cry out to me, and they still haven't yet, by the way. But I'm going to pressure them to the point where they don't want to live there anymore. They've had it pretty good, you have to admit. And it's kind of like a, a frog in a, in a pot. You know how they say if you just turn the water up and get it warmer and warmer and warmer, they'll never jump out of the pot. They just kind of boil. If you do it slow enough, kind of a sick picture, but that's what's happening here. We're going to make them work hard. Well, honey, I think, well, where are you going to go? Where are you going to get a job, Bob? I mean, this is the only job. we got to work in the pits, you know, kind of thing. I mean, you can go to the desert? Well, no, I guess not. Well, then let's go. we got to go to work. And so you, you get used to the vigor. You get used to the rigor. You get work. All of a sudden, misery becomes normal. Well, God's going to keep pushing and pushing until they begin to cry out to him and say, you know what? We want out of here, God. Now, I don't know where to go, and I don't know how we're going to get out of here, but we need you to deliver us. So the midwives, it's, it's interesting. Verse 22, so Pharaoh, you can't trust the midwives anymore, commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. I'm done being secretive about it and have the midwives do the dirty work. I'm just making it blatant. All you boy babies that are born out there, they all need to be tossed into the river. Oh, that's, that's different, isn't it? That's the line. 
Nobody knew up until now. Nobody knew until verse 22 that that was Egypt's plan for the babies. Everybody's like, well, okay, okay, we can work with vigor. Okay, we can make our lives miserable. I mean, okay, we can accept a lot of things, but what did you say? Yeah, you're going to throw all your boy babies in the river from here on out. Mm. You hit a button. You pushed a button too hard. Verse or chapter two. And a man of the house of Levi went and took, a, took his wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. Can we pause there for a minute? I know we're not going to do this all the way through. These are short chapters. There's a lot going on here, and I want you to pick up on this. It's, it's a little bit of a stretch, but I want to connect some dots for everybody here. We have a life that is absolutely miserable. And by design, their lives are miserable. Every child born into this is going to have a life of misery. And I have heard this a lot, and maybe you have too, but a lot of young parents or young future parents ask me, I don't know if I want to bring a baby into this world. I mean, I don't know if it's appropriate. I mean, what do they have to look forward to? And I would point them to this passage right here where some young Levi guy and some young Levi gal decided to get married in the middle of it all anyway. And they decided to have babies anyway. If we don't, as Christians, get married, if we don't, as Christians, have babies, where are the deliverers going to come from? Where will the Moseses be born from? I think that's very important and we need to settle. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yeah, there's a lot of yuck out there. Yes, the world is polluted and it's a sewer. But my home doesn't have to be like that. And I can teach my kids to swim. I can teach them how to build an ark and put pitch on it. How to float above. How to be what they're called to be in God's eyes. Now, God has given us the ability and the freedom to have as many babies as you want to have, provided you're able to. This is no slam against those who could never have kids. I'm not, we're not saying that, but every child that's ever been born has always been a blessing from God. It doesn't mean if you didn't have kids, you're not blessed of God. It just simply means he blessed you in different ways. But make no mistake about it, as a, as a human race, we need to understand that every single baby that's been given has been a gift from God. Whether it was treated like that or not, is a different matter, but it has been a gift from God. God is raising up a deliverer here. God is going to do a supernatural work here. So the question isn't, should I? It's, what does God want me to do? In the, I have this question on how many kids is too many, you know, like I know, you know, well, there's a, there's a special book that pastors get, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's a, got to follow the dots. You're how old and what? No, it's as many as you want to have, but, but you can stop anytime too. God's given us that freedom to create and not to create. We can go or we can stop. We can have none. We can have a lot. Some people have a lot. My dad had a, a, a partner in his business. He was number 16. I'm sorry. That's great. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I'm trying to get this crew together to go to Okaboji for a week. I can't imagine. It. You just, you don't go to Okaboji with 16 kids. You just, you just try to keep count, I guess. How many? 16 beds. Well, 17, if you want to have a place to stay. It's amazing to me. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. Does that mean he ran out of ideas? You think God exhausted? Like, I can't think of uh, platypus. Okay, I'm done. You know, I can't even make a good animal anymore. I'm out of ideas. You know, no, he could have kept going. He could have kept going, but he, he chose to stop. Everything I made is good. And he's also given that, uh, that ability to us too. I've had two. I've had one. I don't want any. <laughs> you know, it's, that's okay. It's between you and the Lord. I've had 16. Well, we'll pray for you. I don't know what else to say. It's a lot. They go ahead and get married. What a beautiful love story. They go ahead and have a baby. Now, this isn't their first child. 
This is their second. Miriam's older. But Miriam's a girl. There was no, there was no worry. But now this boy. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, I mean, you know what that means. She didn't say, oh, he's cute. Let's keep him. No. Every mother looks down at the ugliest baby in the world and says, he is adorable. Don't you think so? And you're like, yeah, kind of. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Every mother sees this. He's a beautiful child. And I believe God writes this. All jokes aside, there's something special about this boy. She can see it. She feels it, you know. He's a beautiful child. She hid him for three months. I don't think we should throw him in the water, <laughs> you know. And his dad's going, yeah, I don't think we should throw him in the water either. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, waterproofed it, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off, that's Miriam, to know what would be done to him. Oh, man. That's a hard one. That's a hard thing. Guys, if we just discovered that a house of Levi has borne Moses, the first deliverer, we know later on that God is going to choose one tribe to be the priest, isn't he? Later on. It hasn't happened yet. Which tribe is it? It's the Levitical tribe, right? Can I read to you a scripture just so we can bring this home to Christians? In Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I want to rush over that. Just as Levi and his household is going to be made the priest, guys, so has Jesus Christ made us priests. And from us, we're the deliverers. We're the ones that bring people to God. We're called to this. Christians are called to a different life on this earth. We are called to be a peculiar people. Peculiar, not weird, but the world might call you weird, but we don't have to be like overly weird. But we should be noted. When someone sees me and watches me and hears me, they should say, there's a Christian. So weird. Talking about Jesus and him coming again and he believes in miracles and all this stuff. Peculiar. We're called to that. See, the rest of the world, the other tribes, they're not called to be peculiar. They're not called to stand out. They're not called to be deliverers. They're not called to bring people to the Lord. But the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical tribe held no land, were not in bondage to the things of this world. They were able to freely move and do what God's called them to do, and that is to bring people to the Lord, to intercede on behalf of God to the people and on, the, on behalf of the people to God. As Christians, we're called to that. We're kings and priests Christ has made us that now, not later. Now, I'm called to that. My kids need to have a career to provide for their families, but that's not their primary mission on this earth. That's so that they can bring people to the Lord, so they can be the priest and the king that they're called to be. That's all that a job is for, is to make sure we've got enough money to eat and tell people about Jesus. That's it. There's no other purpose for us. We're Levites. We're kings and priests on this earth. We're called to be the deliverers, to lead people out of Egypt and into the promised land. That's all we do. Gets it clear, doesn't it? I need clarity. I need someone to tell me, what am I supposed to do? This. Thanks. That's all I needed was some direction. Well, we've all got it. Verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, probably looking for crocs, I suppose. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. What's that? You know, a little boat over there. And when she opened it, so it's like this really cool cased reed, you know, this little, oh, it's a little boat. They opened it up. It's quite, you know, nothing, you know, we don't know. 
some kid made it to watch it go down the stream or whatever. We don't know. When she opened it up, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Now we don't know how she knows that except some of the obvious things, probably wrapped in a Levitical cloth of some kind, maybe, maybe not. But as a mother, you know, you probably wouldn't have shoved your baby in there naked. You would have wrapped it up, made sure he was cozy and snug and swaddled and everything you could do. As weird as the whole situation is, she did what she had to do. Or who else would put their baby? She knows what her dad's told everybody to do. She knows what her dad said. And here's another lesson for us, I think. You know, you can look over at Pharaoh and you can say, you know what, Pharaoh and their households, a bunch of baby killers or a bunch of, they're not all that way. This girl was sick about it, apparently. If she was okay with it, like her dad was okay with it, she'd have just shoved that thing under the water. Stupid Hebrews think they're going to get by with this. She didn't. She had compassion on that baby. She saw this baby, saw the same beauty in this baby that the mom saw. We got to be careful about lumping everybody in on stuff like that. Not everybody feels that way. She certainly didn't. This is one of the Hebrew kids. She had compassion. So the sister, this is Miriam. She's going, this is, a. I mean, we had a, I know it's a movie, but they didn't do a very good job. We need a new movie of this. You know, you can see Miriam in there going, no way. You know, I thought my little baby brother wasn't going to make it. I thought a croc. I thought I was going to, she's as concerned as mom. She's following it. Mom can't, she can't watch. And Miriam's like, I can. And she's chasing this baby down the river and watching it. And all of a sudden, she is. So she runs up. Shall, shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. Now, I, I, it doesn't say any of this. There's got to be something going on there. Some kind of knowing. Where'd this little Hebrew girl come from? I mean, you talk about a security situation. You've got Pharaoh's daughter bathing there naked. Okay, one of the jobs is to keep all the guys away and everybody else away so nobody's watching this whole thing unfold. And all of a sudden, some Hebrew little girl comes flying out of nowhere. You can see him, you know, all the Pharaohs. Hey, were you, do, you know, trying to stop her? Nobody. She walks up and she says, should I call a wet nurse for you? Because unfortunately, there's probably a lot of wet nurses out there of the Hebrew women. Because you certainly can't feed the child. Shall I find one for you? And she just looks at her and says, go. She knows. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. This is a beautiful sense of humor our God has, you know. Not a, not a quirky, hokey, foolish sense of humor like I have, but a good one like, okay. How do I bring a deliverer in? Why don't we have Egypt raise him? Pay for it too. Have his mom get paid for by the Egyptian government to raise her own kid. And then we're going to let him educate him too while he's there and train him up in all the things he's going to be needing. You know, interesting. God is very ironic. And I love that about him. Yeah, go ahead. So, so Miriam runs back to mom and we don't have any of this, but you got to see it. But mom, guess what? The, the lady picked up Moses or whatever. They don't know the name yet. It picked up your baby, the, your kid, you know, and, and, and wants you to come take care of him. Nice. This can't be true. My God has answered my prayer. So much is unsaid here. And I, I got to fill in the gaps. And the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. So she called his name Moses. The, the lady did saying, because I drew him out of the water. And isn't that interesting? That's what it means, to draw out. And God says, that's a great name. Because that's exactly what I'm going to You think it's because you drew him out of the water? Oh, there's a much bigger drawing out that's going to take place later. It's about 80 years away, but it's going to be big. You know, Good name. Leave it. How do you think Moses' mom nursed that baby? I bet she savored every moment. Savor every moment. Pour into your children every chance you get. Show them grace. Show them mercy. Teach them the ways of the Lord. 
talk about scripture, sing psalms to them, pour into those kids. The most impactful Sunday school classes we have are the toddlers and the next group up. That's the most impact as a church we'll ever have. We do our best with the rest, but don't ever think that toddler class is like, well, that's just training for the big show, you know, when you get into the, the tweens or whatever. No, you don't want the tweens. That's a special group. No, I'm kidding. You do. They're wonderful. Sometimes. Um, those toddlers, yeah, they're not even listening to me. They're not even getting what I'm saying. I mean, I can't hold their attention for more than three minutes. Those kids are operating at a genius level. You're boring. They're like Speedy Gonzalez, and you're like a sloth to them. And you're reading the story, and they're going, I am at the end of the story already. Let's go, you know, because they got it. You can pour in so much into those kids. You got three minutes, plenty of time. Plenty of time to talk about Jesus with them. And then you play, and then you keep them going. And you, oh, man. Now, you're dead, but they're ready for the next person. You know, who else is going to try to take care of me? Because I ain't even close to done with my energy. That toddler class and that next age up, four to six, pour, pour, pour into those kids the things of the Lord. Show them, show them, show them grace, love, mercy. And they will remember it the rest of their lives. Moses goes off of probably three maybe five years worth of his mother pouring into him. And she may not ever see him again as far as we know, but boy, he remembers all of it. So important. Now other kids will get it too. We do our best to pour into them, but those two classes are amazing. And so, and that's one, two times a week. You got that age group at home. They're not too little. They're not too litter, little. Let them do stuff with their hands because you're boring and you're slow. Understand that. They're just mad. So let them play with Legos or Duplos or whatever and talk them to them about Jesus. They don't need to be looking you in the eye. They don't need to be sitting still on the couch. That's torture. Let them play and just talk to them about the Lord. You remember that? I loved that class when I taught it. First class I ever had. I think we had 16 to 25, sometimes 26 I mean, three to seven, we had a big group, one person. Sometimes we had a helper, sometimes we didn't. I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, how do we do this? Okay, we dump out Legos and we let them all sit on the ground. We let them play. We got rid of the tables. We got rid of the chairs. Had to do something because when I first showed up, when we first showed up, first time we did a class, they had this table with buckets in the table with seat belts. And you're supposed to put the toddlers in there and buckle them up and sit down in the horseshoe and read to them the Bible. You know what they did the whole time, right? You know, trying to get out of this thing. And you're like, Jesus loves you. Okay, here's a crayon. No, you know, don't poke it in your Bob's eye or whatever. And so we got rid of the tables and the chairs. We set them all down with guys. Okay, you guys have at it, man. Have fun. But just be quiet while we're doing it. And I read them the story. And I remember the moment someone reached around, someone that, one, of the, one of the parents, I'll never forget this, one of those moments. So are they even listening to you? And so I asked a question. Five hands went up. Yeah, they're listening. Of course they're listening. You just got to get where they're at. They're like, oh, he's so slow and boring. Yes, it's Jesus. He's the answer for every question in Sunday school. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they get it. They're so fun. They're so great. Pour into them. This mother is pouring in. I have five years. I am giving everything I can. And, you know, she's going over history. She's going over Abraham. She's talking about Isaac. She's talking about Jacob. She's telling stories about Joseph, telling stories about mom and dad, what God did for us, how he brought us up, how Adam and Eve, all of it is being poured in this little kid. He remembers all of it. He remembers all of it. Now, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, it's a big gap here, guys, 40 years. Then he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating Hebrew. Now, he's already identified that that's my brethren. Always remembered that about them. He sees an Egyptian beating them, and he sees oppression, and he hates it. One of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And the only reason you look this way and that is if you're about to do something you're not supposed to do, right? So he knows it's wrong. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. 
And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, in other words, one was oppressing the other. He sees oppression again. Doesn't matter who, he hates oppression. He says, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you tend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Oh, I didn't look this way, that way, and the other way. Someone knows about this. So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now he goes across the Sinai Peninsula, which is desert, arid, Yucky, horrible. And he's going to spend 40 years out there raising sheep and goats from here on out because he can't go to Egypt. So he goes across this horrible land to raise goats and sheep for somebody else. Now, he's sitting by the well. It's what you do. That's a common place. It's, it's the circle where everybody comes to get water. That's where you meet people. You make connections. You understand that you're a traveler. You're getting water, so on. So he goes to the right place, and he sits there. Now, um. Oh, I had a bunch of cross-references I didn't get to. That's all right. Too late now. Must be the Lord. Yeah, we got to be done. Okay. So he sits down by the well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to, uh, to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove these women, these seven daughters, away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Of course he did. He hates oppression. It's built into him. I don't like the way you're doing that. I don't like the way you're doing that. We saved a baby bird last night from our mean old cat. You all know I trained a cat. We caught a feral cat instead of the raccoon we were trying to get. So I said, well, and long story short, we trained this cat. Now it's overly affectionate, won't get off me and whatever. Well, this cat likes to hang around and find poor little baby birds on the ground, which is not a good thing to find in the garage later on. So we hear these blue jays going at it, and I find my cat looking at this bird is sitting in the corner like, what am I going to do? And the mom and dad are out there and whatever, and I'm like, ah, I'll save the bird. So I save the bird. It's built into me. It's always been like that. First time I got a BB gun. I know you care. Too bad. You got to listen. I got a BB gun, and I'm shooting stuff, and I get tired of shooting stuff, so I see a bird. I got it. I got it. I felt horrible. And it wasn't dead. So I cock it again. It wasn't a good BB gun. I shoot it. And it's still just flopping and broken. I'm just, oh. Until finally I, start, I club it because I want to put it out of its misery. And I break my gun in the process. This brand new gun. Broke the stock off of it because I felt so bad. I care less. I can't believe I killed a baby bird. You know? It's built into me. 50 years old, I'm saving baby birds out of my garage. You know? Some things you just can't get out of you. Moses hates oppression. He hates the fact that they're doing this. And so he does what he does. It's built into him. He protects them. And he waters their flock for them. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, how is it that you've come so soon today? I mean, it usually takes you gals a lot longer to do this job. And they said, an Egyptian delivered us, delivered from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us to water and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, and where, he, where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. You know, it's a desert, ladies. We're looking for seven guys. <laughs> this guy just beat up all the other guys that don't even give you a second look because they tried to steal your water at the well. And he protected you from all of them and fed your flock. And you left him out there. Bring the bachelor home. So he and his, said to his daughters, where is he? And they said, that. then Moses was content to live with the man. And, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to, to Moses. Zipporah means little bird. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned. Because of the bondage, and they cried out. It's been 40 years of bondage before they just started to cry out to the Lord. It took 40 years of slavery for them to say, we need God. 
And so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Forty years, Moses has been walking around. Did you notice what it said there? He's still taking care of his father-in-law's flock. I never noticed that before. Where's his own flock? You remember, Jacob, how fast it was for him to figure out how to work Laban, to get his own flock going and to take care of Laban's too, but he made sure his flock was going. He had drive. He had ambition. He, had, he was an entrepreneur. I'm going to get this flock going. Yeah, it's bigger than yours. He was just like that. Abraham, or Moses, 40 years later, he's still taking care of his father-in-law's stuff. That guy's lost all drive, all ambition. He spent, and, and someone made this, I'm stealing it. 40 years, Moses was made into something. And 40 years, he was made into nothing. And the next 40 years, we're going to see God use nothing and make something. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing what God can do. This is an 80-year-old man who's still taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. No drive, nothing of his own, no business, nothing to show for it. Comes home, sets his staff down, does the day in and day out. But at 80 years old, he gets the call from God. And so we're going to see why there's so much reluctance in his voice uh, when we get back to this chapter. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. We thank you for showing us Moses' life, the process that he goes through, how he hates oppression, how he, his mother poured into him, trusted you, we appreciate all that. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to take that home with us tonight. Pour into our families. We, we don't have the luxury of knowing how long we have them. She did. She knew she only had four years or five years at the most, and she poured in because she knew it was going to come to an end someday. Lord, help us to pour into our kids. They need to know you, and that's what we're called to do. And so, God, I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit. Give us wisdom as to uh, how to go about it the best way. Every kid's different. They all learn differently. They, they hear differently. They see differently. They, they learn different ways. We need wisdom from you by your spirit, how to train and teach each child that's under our care, whether that's our own or somebody else's, that they might know you the best, best we can show them. We thank you for them. We thank you for all the children, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.